All right, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Now, again, this is going to be the, pretty much the same passage we were breaking down last time we met. I'm adding verse 5, and we, by God's, hope, God's provision, we hopefully will get there tonight. Um, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Now we won't have time to finish all of verse five tonight. We're only gonna deal hopefully, time time permitting, uh, with adding to our faith goodness. But before we can go there, we left off last time we met uh, looking at the fact that God has called us to him by his own glory and goodness. And we just barely touched on that. And I just really felt like we needed to take more time. And so we saw last uh, time that David had said in Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10, that we are to taste and to see that God is good. So I want you to turn there real quick. Go to Psalm 34 and look at verses 8 through 10. That'll be our launching point for tonight as we take a look at God's glory and his goodness. Um, We're going to start off with his goodness. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. David is speaking and he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, This is a call to come and experience and know God's goodness. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Even though I've been a Christian since 1973, I have struggled throughout most of my Christian life really coming to an understanding and to receiving and receiving by faith the fact that God is good. I've known God is holy. I've known that God is judge. I've known that God is the only one who can give me righteousness. And I've known what it means to trust him by faith. But to really rest in him and to enter into a relationship where I've received his love has been a struggle of mine and to really see God as good has been something that the enemy has tried to blind me to for a long long time most of us unfortunately probably have had that same struggle we know that we're going to heaven when we die because of Jesus and not because of us but the whole idea of seeing God as good is tough especially because we try to measure our definition of good versus God's definition of good. Also because of the fact that we look at circumstances and stuff and we try to give them a lot more weight than we do the truth of God's word. And you know what I've come to realize? Many of us have come to look at God in the same way as the third servant in the parable of the talents. Go with me to Matthew 25 and look at verses 24 and 25. In Matthew 25, we see the parable of the talents And in verses 24 and 25, we see the reckoning time of the third servant. In verse 24 of Matthew 25, it says, Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, we got to deal with this. Is God a hard man? Yes. If you don't know him, he would come across that way. But actually, remember Jesus, who is God, said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here he says, you, you, you gather where you haven't even done the work. 
We, you make us do all the work and you get the glory. Isn't that what it says in Matthew chapter 5? Do your good deeds before men so they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father. There's some of us who fall into that mindset of thinking, well, he's wanting us to work hard, but he gets the credit. But actually, folks, if you come to understand the whole of Scripture, you come to realize anything that you do that is of eternal value, anything that God would be glorified for, you didn't do. Amen. He does it through us. But unfortunately, many Christians view God in the manner of the third servant. Where you, you, you've worked real hard, you've tried to please Him, you're doing your best to make Him happy, and you most of the time feel like you can't. Now, some will say, wait a minute, in this story of the third, uh, third, uh, this parable of talents, uh, look at what the, the, the master says, you wicked servant. So you saw me this way, then I'm going to judge you this way. Keep in mind, he's now dealing with him at the time of judgment. And he's, in this parable here, he's pick, talking about the time of judgment. And at the time of judgment, for those who have not entered into a relationship of faith through Jesus Christ, who, who, who don't have salvation because they tried to do it on their own, they're going to be judged harshly. They're going to be dealt with firmly. God is a just judge. But for those of us who are his children, there is a big difference. The scripture is very, very clear. If you remember, I talked to you a while ago on the five different reactions to the fear of God. The fear that causes us to fight him. The fear that causes us to run from him. The fear that causes us to be paralyzed. There's the fear that he wants us to have to run to him and seek his mercy and beg for his forgiveness because he's righteous and he's judge and he's right and we're not. But then after that, the Bible says his perfect love drives that kind of fear out. That fear has to do with punishment. The one whose fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. But then the Bible throughout the scripture talks about for Christians, those of us who have entered into this salvation relationship, who have had that fear of punishment removed, we're still to live our lives here in reverent fear. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if you remember, I talked to you about that, that type of fear, that response to fear is not a fear that makes you resist him or fight him or a fear that makes you try to hide from him. It's not a fear that makes you paralyzed and afraid to do anything. It shouldn't be a fear that I'm going to watch out or he's going to get me. No, he's already fully punished Jesus Christ for your sins. That's a fear that should cause you to run to him because he's good. And his ways are best and you obey him because he knows what's best and he's good. And if you listen to what he says, you will be blessed, the Bible says. Those who, that's why back in Psalm 34, I don't know if you ever noticed it. David went from saying, he says, taste and see that God is good. Fear the Lord. How many of us would ever put fearing God and God being good in the same sentence? But David did because he understood that when we truly understand who God is and that his ways are best, we obey him, not because he's going to get us if we don't, but because he knows what he's doing and his way is best and he's good. Now, unfortunately, though, people that see God in the manner in which the third servant did, and there are a lot of Christians that see him in that way. And I know that because I was one for a long time. You're going to have three different reactions. And I don't know if this might be some of you out there tonight. Some of, you, some of you, if you see God as a hard man, where he makes you do a lot of work and he gets the credit, you're going to kill yourselves trying to please him. And it, you, you'll have that sense of it doesn't matter what I do, it's not enough. And that's a sad, sad way to live. Trust me, I've been there. Others give up trying to please him and they rebel. They just say, what's the use? You know, there's nothing I can do to be good enough for him. And they rebel. There are others, like this one here, who just do nothing and they bury their, they don't rebel they don't try to kill themselves pleasing him anymore. They just do nothing. And they just pretty much just shut down. They bury their talent in the ground. Tonight, I want to speak to all of us. And I want you to come to understand and see God for who he really is. 
so that you will serve him, not for fear of how he's going to punish you if you did it wrong, but because you come to understand my father knows what's best and he's good. Actually, one of the things I used to struggle with when Becky and I were first married was, uh, I don't, some of you know Becky's dad, he's a pretty, pretty talented guy and he can, anything he puts his mind to, he could do it and do it well. I mean, I literally married Superman's daughter. <laughs> Some of you that don't know him, let me just explain. I mean, he, he uh, uh, worked here in this area as a teacher for 35 years in the school system, one teacher of the year in the state of Florida. He also built boats on the weekends because he wanted to make a little extra money. And he built boats that would go to the Bahamas and back. He was a commercial fisherman. He did whatever he put his mind to, he would excel at. He then retired and built himself a 6,000 square foot house on a lake up in the area of Gainesville and used it for ministry purposes. He barefoot water skis just about every morning. He used to water ski for Cypress Gardens. The more you get to know him, the more you realize, good grief. But you know what? I married Becky. And because Becky had grown up with a dad who knew what to do and was wise and was talented, whenever a tough decision arose, she didn't check with her husband. She called dad. And that actually caused some friction in the beginning of our marriage because I wanted to be the one she checked with, you know, or I wanted her to think I had something to say. But the reason why Becky did that, you can't fault her, was her father had proven himself to be good at what he did. He knew what he was doing. I want you to know your heavenly father the same way. I want you to know what my father says here is right. It's good. It's not because he's mean. It's not because he's testing to see if we're going to be willing to do the hard road. He wrote this book because he made the universe. He knows how it all works. He knows which way is best. And if you listen, you'll find out not only does he know what he's doing. Man, actually, when I obeyed him, I was blessed. Not because I obeyed him, but because obedience to what he has designed will result in good goodness. Right? I don't even like the word goodness sometimes, but you're going to see it a bunch. Blessings. But we, we try to tend to use the word blessings to our own benefit. That we're almost like a lot of times we hear the word blessings and we think, you did good, I'm going to bless you. But it's actually the other way around. If you want God's blessings, they're received through obedience to what he said, not because he's going to reward you for doing good, because if you do what he says, that's where the good. It's kind of like the law of gravity. It's there. You know, you can't break the law of gravity. You can break yourself trying. But if you understand that stuff falls, that's just the end result. The end result of obedience to God's word, God's word is blessings. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want us to begin and taste and see that God is good. The fact that he even says it that way means we most likely don't understand it, correct? I mean, why would David say taste and see that he's good? Try this. Most likely it's because most people don't understand how good he is. And so let's begin tonight to taste and see God's glory and his goodness. Remember back in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says that he's called us out of his glory and goodness. And because of his glory and goodness. So I want to know what this glory and goodness is. But we're going to start with the goodness of God. Go to Psalm 84. Look at verses 10 through 12. Psalm 84 verses 10 through 12. Some of you are already starting to hum, aren't you? 
Listen to what the psalmist says here. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Why would the psalmist say, I'd rather spend a day in your court than a thousand somewhere else? Why, why would the psalmist say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house, God, than to live anywhere else? Why would he say that? Quality. I'm sorry? Quality. Yeah, definitely quality. The presence of God. The presence of God. But why? Because of his greatness. Because of his greatness. Because he's good. The presence of God is fullness of joy. But a lot of us, we really don't understand that. We just don't. And that's okay. I'm not here to beat you up on it. I struggle with it too. I'm just as human as you. But remember, David says, taste and see. Taste. Just tell me if this isn't true, he says. Go to verse 5 of Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Did you see that? Set your hearts on what? what what's another word for pilgrimage? Travel. Travel, a journey. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. I'm calling you tonight in love to just taste and see. Begin this journey. Say, Lord, your word says you're good. Sometimes I struggle with that. Sometimes I, I wonder because of what's happened, because of the loss of my job, because of the loss of my spouse, because of the sickness, because of whatever. I wonder sometimes if you're good. It's okay to say that. He already knows. The sooner you acknowledge what he already knows, the sooner he can bring you to where he wants you to be. But if you keep pretending that everything's cool when he knows it's not, you'll never be able to move where he needs you to move. Go to, go to Psalm 103. Yes, sir. Fred. This is not the first time, is it? <laughs> Born in sin. Yes, sir. Yep. Therefore, it says, No good things does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. You're going to have to wait till the end of the study to answer that question. How come you always tell me that? Wait till the That's a great question. But he does, no good thing does he withhold. No, he's got to read, right? Yep. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Stick with it to the end. Stick with it to the end. And I think it'll, it'll be answered. All right. Go to Psalm 103. Look at verses 1 through 17. Listen closely to what it says here. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with what? Good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
So great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. I'm just encourage you sometime later on to take some time alone in this psalm and just let him speak to you. Meditate on some of these verses. Let him just speak to you about it. But go to Psalm 119. Look at verse 68. We're just going to read just verse 68. We're not reading all Psalm 119. We don't have time. Look at what he says here. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Now, folks, I wish I could find a better way to articulate this for you. When the Bible says that he blesses those who fear him, what he's saying is this. Those who believe that his way is best and they obey him because his way is best receive the blessings that naturally will flow to those who do what he says. For example, <laughs> um, let me just give this example. If I were to have designed a motor that ran on gasoline and needed oil and I said to you, you must use, say, Pennzoil 10W40. You can use some other types of oil, but it will run best and you will experience the longest life of this motor if you use Pennzoil 10W40. Would I be a jerk for saying that you need to use Pennzoil 10W40? No. Why? Why would I not be a jerk for doing that? I'm looking out for your best interest. I designed the motor. I know how it runs best and what my instructions, my commands, my decrees are so that if you obey them, you'll receive the automatic blessing that will come the long life of the motor, the fullest you know, experience of what it can do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when Bible talks about obeying God, you who fear him, it's not watch out. Are you going to get it? No, he's designed this world to run in a certain way. His commands line up with that. Some of you may not know this, but actually scientists have found out that on the eighth day of a baby's life, it has its highest level of clotting ability. Does anybody know what day God told them to circumcise their babies when they were born? Why did he do it? Why? Well, well, he wants us to make sure we'll obey him and do it. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with whether or not you do it on that eighth day. As much as he knows, the eighth day, you'll bleed less. Everything he's designed in this universe runs in a certain way. And if you listen to him, when he says don't have premarital sex, it's not because he's a killjoy. He knows it's best. Obey him. Those of you who fear him, fear is not always oh, going to get me. Fear is my father knows best. And I want to do what he says because when I do what he says, naturally it's good and the blessings will follow. Not because he says, oh, you did what I said. Let me give you a blessing. The blessings are automatically built in for those who obey him. But you need to first believe that he's good and that he knows what he's doing. Because most of us, when we hear a law or a decree or a statute, oh, and by the way, if you've looked at my Bible here in Psalm 119, see all the places that it's yellow? That's when it talks about his law, his decrees, his statutes, his promises. 
all the way through. I went and highlighted every time he said your promise, your law, your decrees, your statutes, your commands. But they're good because he made the universe and he knows what's best. Let me show you a couple other places real quick. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. I know since you've already been through the study of 1 Peter, you can quote this, but I'll still read it to you anyway. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 3. It says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, we've got to read before that now, don't we? It says there in verse 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. For those of us who have received salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we know we've been forgiven of our sins. We know that's good, don't we? Yes. Hopefully you know that's good. Hopefully I'll never hear another Christian in my life say, well, nothing good ever happens to me. Sad how many people have actually said that over their life. Nothing good ever happens to me. What did you just say about your salvation? Yeah. You've at least tasted that he's good if you know Jesus, right? Oh, there's more. There's more. There's more. Hebrews, go to chapter 12, though. Look at verses 7 through 11. He says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Now, let me clarify for you. A lot of times when we hear the word discipline, we think that we've done something wrong and now God is disciplining us for it. Sometimes God disciplines us just simply because he's shaping us and it's for our best. Right? Those of you that were in the military and you went to boot camp, you went through discipline. It wasn't because they were punishing you for anything you did. Now, sometimes they might have said, well, because of this, everybody's going to run. But for the most part, the reason why they did what they did, even though it was hard, was they were shaping you and molding you. And it was for your best and the good of your, your, your unit. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son's not disciplined by his father or shaped or molded, if you will? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our what? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, though, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, this is part of the problem. One of the reasons why a lot of us have a trouble seeing God as good is because we hear good, meaning no, no struggles. We hear good, meaning life of ice cream and no broccoli. We hear good, meaning no financial worries. But what did Paul say? Paul said, I, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I know what it is to be in want. I know what it is to have plenty. But I've learned the secret. I don't look at life through the lens of when I have little or through the lens of when I have a lot. My focus is back on my father who said he would take care of me. And I'm just as wealthy as when I have little or as when I have a lot. Because everything comes to me through my father's hand. And I have just as much as I ever did, even if my bank account says zero and my bank account says a million. Because everything comes from my father. Don't let man's definition of good blind you to God. 
the Bible says that God is good, then everything, if you're his child, everything that comes to your hand or comes to your life from his hand is for your best. We all like to quote Romans 8, 28, don't we? God causes all things to work for what? Together for the good. For those who love him are called according to his purpose. Go with really one, one last passage to deal with God's goodness. Go to Genesis 50. I love this one. I love this one. Genesis 50, 50. 5020. Sorry, 50 colon 20. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. In this situation, is if you know the story of uh, uh, Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. God put him in power in Egypt. His brothers now are finding out who he is, and they're so afraid that they're going to get their just desserts from the hand of their brother. And they're begging for his forgiveness and his mercy. And in verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Now, I'm just going to just kind of pull something out here and I'm pull something else out along with it to help you see what I'm talking about. What happened to Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery? Bad things. Bad things. He ended up as a slave. He ended up working in Potiphar's house. He was righteous and obedient and he didn't sleep with the guy's wife and he was accused of rape when he didn't do it. He ended up in the dungeon. He was there for many years. It was ultimately down the road that God had this all work out. And I guarantee you there were times that Joseph probably could have said, where's the good in this? What good could come out of this? Look what's going on here. This, you, you tell me God's good. Show me where God's good. That's where the life of faith and hanging on to the truth of what he says is what's going to get you through. I don't see goodness right now, but the Bible says God is good and he doesn't lie. Therefore, he's going to use this for good. And by the time it all came to fruition, he was able to look at his brothers and said, yes, your intention was for evil, but God used it for good. Oh, and not just the fact that I'm in power now in Egypt. He's put me here to be able to save many, many lives. Let me show you something that God just showed me in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, look at verses 8 and following. Now, the nation of Israel's uh, uh, crossed over the Jordan River. They're about to defeat Jericho, but they send some spies ahead to kind of spy out the, the city. Verse 8 says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she, meaning Rahab, went up on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Now I'm just going to stop right there. Listen to what she says. We heard about how God dried up the Red Sea when you guys came out of Egypt. Does anybody know how long it has been since he dried up the Red Sea? Over 40 years. Do you see the fact that God is using all things for his purposes, even down the road? 
Because here, 40 years later, when these people go into Jericho, the nation is not fighting them. They're sitting behind their walls in fear because of something God did 40 years ago. When the nation of Israel is crossing over the dry land, we sit there and look at it and say, wow, God's really taking care of them. Oh, he's doing way more than that. Folks, whenever we say, oh, I know what God's doing, we show our ignorance. Because God's always doing way more than we ever could imagine, ask, or think. And when he was parting the Red Sea and having them walk across on dry ground and then drowning the Egyptians, he wasn't just taking care of that situation. He was orchestrating something that would be used 40 years down the road for the blessing and the good of the nation of Israel. Folks, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I can tell you this much. Even though it doesn't feel good, God's good. And you just got to trust in that and you hang on and you hold on in faith. And the Bible says that he will reward us for everything that we have done by faith. Things we have lost, mothers or children or homes for the sake of the kingdom. He'll reward you. The Bible actually says a hundred times as much in this life and in the life to come. Folks, if you would just stop judging everything by what it looks like right now. And hang on to the truth of who he is. Oh, by the way. You, this is only going to happen a little bite at a time. This is only going to happen a little bite at a time. The reason the psalmist could say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in your house than live in the tents of the wicked is because he had been eating for a while. Taste and see that he's good. Go ahead, Duke. You stopped in uh, 84 at uh, verse 5. Mm -hmm. and you go to verse 6. Okay, read verse 6 for us. Uh, verse 6 is... Uh, who passes through the valley of Baca, make it a well, his rain also filleth the pools. Baca was an arid plant that showed that the, uh, the uh, pilgrims on the way to the holy city had a, had a rough area to go to. Yes, they did. They, they had their trials and tribulations. If you remember back in Psalm 34, he says, The righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. The goodness of God does not mean you'll have no struggle. The goodness of God is everything that happens to you is going to be for your best. It's for your benefit. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, you, know, when you go through trials of many kinds. Because God's doing something for your best. Now, it's hard at that time. It's painful at times. And that's why we got to hang on. Oh, the difference between those who really know the Lord in faith and those who had false conversion, if you will, or false response. The parable of the soils. Remember when the trouble came. The seed that fell on the rocky soil had sprung up, sure looked like salvation, but when the trouble came, it went away because it had no root. The thing that will separate those who understand who God really is and those who don't are the ones that in the struggle keep going for it because he's good. Now, I want to talk a little bit, though, about his glory. I want to talk a little bit about his glory. Go to Exodus 33. Because remember, he said he's called us by his glory and his goodness. Now, i got to be honest with you. This is a hard thing to try to articulate. To try to talk about and teach on the glory of God um, when we don't fully understand it. All we can do is take a little bit here and a little bit there from Scripture and piece together an idea. One day we will experience it face to face. And even then we won't be able to describe it. That's why Paul said he saw things he wasn't even permitted to talk about. I think part of the reason is he couldn't, he couldn't describe it. He couldn't describe it. Look at Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. 
says, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Now, have you ever taken the time to think about how bold a statement that was? That's bold. That's bold. Think back to Abraham talking with God when God says, hey, should I hide what I'm about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah from my friend? And then God says, I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham says, well, would you destroy it for this many, if there are this many righteous? And God says, if there are that many righteous, I, I wouldn't destroy it. Well, what about this much? And he, he even says, far be it for me to tell you how to run your world, God, but would I be permitted to speak? If he knows you by name, he knows what you're thinking anyway. Talk to him. Keep in mind that he's God and you're not. By the way, any theology that doesn't let God say no is a false teaching. There's a lot out there that is available to us in response in faith that the Bible talks about. But there are preachers and teachers out there who have taken it to an unbiblical realm. And they say, if you believe it enough, God has to do it. No, no, no. Any belief, any teaching that says God can't say no is a bad teaching. But there's a lot more to living in obedience and in faith and knowing who God is. Look at what God says after Moses says, show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you see my glory. I'm going to let you see most of my glory. Uh, but I'm only going to let you see the goodness part of me. Because I am holy and righteous and I'm a righteous judge as well. And there's a wrath side of me that's just as pure. You can't see that part. You wouldn't live through it. You ever notice that anybody that had the experience of being brought into the presence of God, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, when they brought in the presence of God, what happened? They fell as dead men. It was overwhelming. Overwhelming. There's an aspect to God's glory that we don't fully understand, and I don't think we can. But let's take a look at a couple of pictures of it. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me here. Look at verses 1 through 8. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. Again, we see the glory of God revealed through the body of Jesus. And then the glory of God enveloped them. And when that happened, boom, down they went again. In John chapter 1, what did John say? Remember, he was there. In John chapter 1, look at verse 14 real quick. said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his what? We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, John was there on that mountain when he saw it and he saw his glory. Peter was there too. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Back in 2 Peter, go to chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. By the way, if you can't turn this fast, I understand. Write them down at least. We did not follow cleverly invented stories, Peter said, when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. John says, We saw his glory. Peter says, we were there. We've seen this. We're not just talking to you about some guy, Jesus, and some story someone's made up. We were there. We saw his glory. We saw his majesty. We heard the voice of God say that he was pleased with him. When we talk to you about Jesus, we're talking about the real deal here, folks. We're eyewitnesses of it. But it's hard for us to describe the glory of God because in some places it's described as a brightness, a brilliance, or a splendor. Other places it's described as a cloud. By the way, have you ever heard the term Shekinah glory? The word Shekinah actually is a mixture of two words. That means he came to dwell. And so the Shekinah glory was God's glory coming to be with them. That's very important because you're going to see something in a second. Well, let's do it now. Who's come to indwell you? Can we not say God? Yes. If he has come to indwell you, the Shekinah glory is within you. Amen. Well, I'm going to show you some scriptures that illustrate this even more. But the word Shekinah is a mixture of two words in the Hebrew that together mean he came to dwell. The glory of God came to live with them. Other places it's described as radiance. In Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 3 real quick. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The Son, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Other times we see glory used as the, we're going to turn there in Psalm 115 verse 1. It talks about honor, to glorify, to receive glory. It's also to receive honor. 
there, there, there's, there's a, when we talk about the glory of God, we, we talk about a very, very big topic that's very hard for us to articulate because it needs so many different words to describe it. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word translated glory is? And some of you do because you've heard preachers say this. If you don't, it's the Hebrew word kabod. K-A-B-O-D is how you transliterate it. And you know what it means? Heavy. Weighty. Of extreme importance. Those of you that grew up in the, in the 50s, you know what I'm talking about when they say heavy, man, heavy. You know, that, that's, that's big. That's a big deal. That's kind of what the picture means. That's what the word glory means. It's, it's weighty. It's heavy. It's more than we can even really put into words. The Greek word is doxa, translated glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. Let me get you started. Some of you can quote it from now. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. The bigness, the importance, the weight, the majesty, the power, the radiance, the splendor. The heavens, as Psalm 119, sorry, 19, verse 1, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Oh, by the way, if you keep reading in that passage, it says night after night, day after day, they continue to pour forth their speech. Remember in Romans 1, it says, nobody's without excuse. Through creation, he has revealed his glory, his divine nature, his invisible qualities have been clearly seen through what has been made. Why? Because the creation itself continues to display the glory of God. One day, we're going to experience it in full. But that doesn't mean that you don't experience it now. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, and then verse 18. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says in verse 7, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory... So that the Israelites couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Holy Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Look at verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Some of your translations say, from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This glory of God that we can't even hardly describe, that makes people pass out when they get in the presence of it, is when dwelling inside of you. And God is wanting more and more of it to be made manifest. Remember we looked last time we met. His divine power has given us everything for life and godliness. Everything you need. So you've already received it. The fullness of God. Remember we looked at Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. That talked about how in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given what? Fullness in Jesus Christ. The glory of God actually dwells within you. Oh, if that means the glory of God dwells within you, that means the goodness of God also dwells within you. And that's why the Hebrew writer, and I don't have time, I wish I did, to, uh, just write this down for a later time. Uh, in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, I want them to see my glory. He says, I and them, I've given them the glory that you gave me. I and them and you and me and we're swimming together. I've given them your glory. Go ahead. 
And we are now because of Jesus. We're not little gods. You haven't become a little God, but God himself indwells you. And you have now learning how to manifest it, learning how to, as we saw last time we met, appropriate. I still remember your word, Rita. But learning how to appropriate the grace that's been given us. Little by little, he will transform us so that what's already there will make its way out. And what does he say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18? I consider now that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with what? The glory that will be revealed in us. He's going to be manifesting it little by little. But in time, you know, I, I, I wrestled with this. You know, the Bible says we're going to come and reign with Jesus during the millennial kingdom. And I've often wondered, what will make them want to listen to me? But I think there's going to be a glory. I think there's going to be a glory to us. Well, there is, but I think it's going to be seen is what I'm getting at. You know, Jesus is going to come in the brightness of his glory and we're going to come with him. I wonder if when we rule and reign with Christ all over the universe, over the world during that time, during the millennium, if part of the reason why those humans, because we won't be that anymore in some sense, then why those humans will obey us is because we might have a little glow ourselves. Don't know. It's interesting. It says the glory is going to be revealed in us. I don't know. But I want to deal real quickly in the time we have left. Go back to verse 5. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 5. For this very reason then. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Some of your translations say virtue. I think that's a good translation as well. You already know that God's goodness dwells within you, right? Hopefully you understand that. And this goodness could also mean virtue, but it's also, this is purity. This is morality. Moral excellence excellence is a a good way. The word translated goodness in the NIV means intrinsic eminence, moral goodness. But listen closely to what I'm saying here. Goodness means more than just doing good things and not doing bad things. That's a part of it. It means doing good things and not bad things. But it's deeper than that. Virtue refers to the being of a person, his or her ever-increasing moral ability. This doesn't mean doing good things now and then, but very regularly. In other words, the virtuous person would never be considered to have done something bad. You know how sometimes we're accused of things? But the person that's virtuous, the person that has added to their faith goodness, or in other words, has has worked on letting Jesus manifest his goodness through us, has lived their life in such a way. That doesn't mean you're perfect. Please don't hear that. But you have manifested through God's grace and you letting him live through you. You've manifested right versus wrong, if you will, so much so that if you were accused of doing something wrong, people would say, now, that couldn't have been them. I know them. That's not who they are. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not who they are. This is what the word means. It's it's a moral purity. It's an ever-increasing doing good, if you will. Virtue and goodness is a godly character. You know, there are some people that are born again, but still known to act more in the flesh than in the spirit. We we know those folks, don't we? We know they're saved because of God's grace, but they, they act in the flesh more than they act in the spirit. Someone who is making every effort to add to their faith this goodness that is already within you. That's someone that is known to be morally pure. 
you're not sinless, but on a whole, you'd trust them with your kids. You'd give them your car keys. You know what I'm saying? You, you'd even give them your, pat, your pin code to your, to your debit card. Because you know this isn't the kind of person that's going to give in to the flesh. By the way, that is available to all of us. That's available to all of us. That's why Paul, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Uh, by the way, uh, we don't have time to turn there, but if you want to look later on at Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12, does anybody know what, what I'm talking about? A virtuous woman. And you go back and you look at that description. She does her husband well. All right, here's how we're going to wrap up, though. How do we add goodness to our faith? How do we do it then? Well, I don't want it to sound too simple, but it's truth. You ask God for his spirit's power to manifest itself in goodness in you. You first go straight to your father and say, apart from you, I can do nothing. I'm not asking you to help me be good. I'm asking you to take control of me so that I become this person that manifests your goodness. I'm saying yes to your spirit and no to my flesh. Now, but you not only go to your father and ask him, you have to also believe that God will do what he's promised. You know, it's no, he's going to do what he said he would do. You know, in Colossians 2 verse 6, you've heard me quoted a bunch. In the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, walk in him. How'd you receive him? You heard what he said. You believed it was true. You received it by faith and you walked out of that encounter believing that God had done what he said he would do. This is the kind of prayer of faith that you're going to pray. You're going to continually say, Lord, you said you would transform me into your likeness. You said that you want me to manifest your goodness. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, do it. I believe you will. And thirdly, you then walk in obedience to God's commands. Remember, fear the Lord means obey him. Not because he's going to punish you if you don't, but because his way is best. He knows what he's doing. He's a good dad. His commands are not burdensome. Therefore, my good. We walk in obedience to God's commands for purity and we will experience God's goodness made manifest in us. Real quick, let me just take you through three places real fast. Romans 8, 2 through 4. Romans 8, 2 through 4. He just said that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature or the flesh, God did by sending his son in, in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, listen closely, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. In other words, he said, you've, he's already canceled the law. He's already defeated it. Now you have the spirit of God within you. And so that you might be able now to live according to the spirit and not the flesh. And when you do, the righteous requirements of the law will be met. Goodness will manifest itself. You don't got to sit around and say, oh, I need to be more gooder. No, you just got to say, Lord Jesus, first, that's bad grammar. Second of all, it's bad theology. You don't need to be more gooder. You need to believe that the Jesus within you will manifest goodness. You ask him to do it. You believe that he will. And then you do what his word says and you watch how it won't be a struggle like you thought it would be. 
because you've asked him, he said he would, and he takes over. Your job is to walk in obedience to what he says. And you'll look back and you'll go, you know what? Obedience wasn't a burden. It wasn't a struggle. His yoke was easy. His burden was light in that area. But when you try to do it, he don't want to help you do it. He wants to do it. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 9, and 11, 9 through 11. You, however, are not controlled by the flesh, if, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But, listen closely, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Is virtue possible for you? Yes. yes. If you're a child of God, you can become known as a man or a woman who is known to be morally godly in their character. But you need to say, God, you do it. And I believe you will. Here's the last one. I'm not going to turn there. We can quote it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet the life I live, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who lives within you and me. Folks, you have been called by God's glory and his goodness. And that's heavy. That's heavy. But that same God now dwells within you. And that manifested glory is going to be made manifest little by little. And your good works are going to show as you believe that God will do it. And you do what he says and you watch. People will start to say, that's a virtuous woman. That's a godly man. And it'll happen. As you turn to him and say, you do it, I believe you will. And you're going to see that we're going to make every effort to add to our faith knowledge next time we get together. And we're going to wrestle some more with that word knowledge, like we wrestled with it a few weeks ago. But hopefully we'll be able to get a handle on it next time we get together. So we'll see you then. Let me pray for us. Father, all I can say is, wow. Um, I thank you that when we taste to see if you're good, it tastes good. Father, I just ask now, knowing how each of us need to hear this message, and only you do that. You only know how each of us need to hear it, but knowing that we all need to hear it in different ways. My prayer is that you would not only be speaking, because I know you will, but that we would listen and that we would hear you. Lord, that we would understand that you're not a God who threatens. You're not a God who, who, who tries to persuade in the sense of guilt or shame. You're a God who stood there on this earth and said, if anyone will, let him come. You wept over Jerusalem when they wouldn't respond. And you said, if only you had known would bring you peace. Oh, I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Father, may we hear your love calling out to us. And may we respond and say, I'm not going to be afraid of you anymore because you're good. And I'm going to trust you. And yeah, it's scary to my flesh. Yeah, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to do what you say because you know how this universe works and you've designed it that those who obey you receive the blessings that are already set up for those who would do what you say. And Father, I want you to withhold no good thing from me. And for me to be blameless, that's got to be you and not me. And so, Lord, thank you, first of all, that my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. But at the same time, as I turn to you on a daily basis and give control of my life to you and I walk in obedience to your word, you will withhold no good thing. And Father... I want everything you have for me. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm experiencing the truth of what he's promised. And I want you to experience the truth of what he's promised. And I can't do that for you. I can't do that for you. Notice Peter didn't say, come to my house and I'll put hands on you. And you'll receive this. He didn't say that, did he? No, he said, I want you to make every effort to add to what you've been given. These things. And you'll find out how they tie in with what we've already received. Let me pray for us. Father. Again, we just thank you for the privilege of being able to come. And Lord, I know it's been hard tonight for us to wrestle with this word knowledge. And, uh, and it's hard, especially because in our English language, as Bill's pointed out, uh, we're kind of sloppy. And we use one word to mean five or six different things. But Lord, at the same time, you are able to give us understanding. May we just understand tonight that we have fullness in you. Whether we understand full knowledge or whatever that means, Lord, may we understand that we have been given everything we need for what you want for us already through our salvation, through Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for thinking in those times that you wanted us to dig, in those times you wanted us to pursue and to seek you and to seek your word and to seek your promises and to act in faith. Forgive us for thinking that we just needed another experience. Oh, Lord, you bless us sometimes with your presence. You bless us sometimes with experiences. But the reality of who you are comes by obedient faith to what you've already given us and what you've already written. And so, Lord, may there be people in this room who hunger so much for you and your word and your truth that they surpass the teacher in their hunger to read this book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.